You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. So Jay, which flavor of Bamboo Labs filament do you prefer? Okay, so I like the mint. I've gone through all of them. I don't like the plain Jane stuff. So I'm looking at the box of bamboo filament that just arrived a few days ago. So to back up, I have the bamboo lab carbon, excellent carbon, sorry. Yeah. And so it has the ability to print carbon fiber based filaments, which are not a true carbon fiber, but uh, they are stronger. I can attest to that. I think I'm just going to go carbon fiber with everything because it actually leaves a really nice texture. It's got that like matte type of fuzzy texture. Okay. It tends to hide the layer lines. Sometimes when you have infill, that infill will pull on the edges or it, it either pulls on the edges as it cools or it shores them up and then the wall layers get pulled in as it cools. The carbon filament doesn't really do that. So the latest, well, I don't know if it's their latest release, but they have PLA, what is it? PLA Tough? Yep. which I'm printing with. I made a Mandalorian helmet for my son and it's like the perfect color, the Mandalorian color, but it is susceptible to different discoloration based on the speed of the layer. The carbon fiber filament does not do that, even in the colors. In my experience, I probably printed 30 things in carbon okay. and it's been really good. And I go with the gray. It, it kind of mimics the carbon fiber look. I don't know, before we, we started, I showed you this really cool Motorola Dynatac 8000X. It's an original brick cell phone from the 80s and 90s because I have a 90s party we're going to on Saturday. So that's going to be fun. But, and you um, are going you know, as? It's going to be as Zach Morris's half Hispanic brother. <laughs> I, <guess>. I see. <laughs> so, yeah. Saved by the, the bell, folks. Saved by the bell. Yes. Big classic. old brick phones. Yes. So you know what? It's really neat. So I printed this. If you see, there are one, two, three, four, five colors in this. So I have the AMS, which is the, what does it stand for? Automated material system or something like that? Don't know. Yeah. Awesomeness. Okay. Yeah. It holds four spools. So I printed it. The housing is in gray and it's in PLA tough. So it's got a really nice texture. It looks good because it is like the tough variety. I don't think it, it has the discoloration. Or, uh, I'm sorry. The, it doesn't like warp. It, it holds its shape well. And then on the inside, this is an insert, this black part. And then I went with an orange color and then I went with a red and obviously the buttons are white. And I'll post this on Instagram because it's just too cool for me to show off once no. at a party. Yeah. And then this whole thing pushes in. So it's a total of five colors. But no, I've been just thrilled with bamboo lab printers. We're going to replace our two Prusa minis because mm-hmm. they're slow. They're small. This is a, a a 10 inch cubic build volume. And right now, so the, the CMM, CMMs, they don't require it, but it's ideal if you have like CMM type fixturing. So I'm printing essentially the negatives of our parts that they sit in. And then we're embedding magnets because we do a pause, drop in magnets, continue printing, and then they're embedded there. No need for super glue or anything like that. You can, and I have, but there's really no need for it. And then our parts just sit there really rock solid. That's in the, the carbon fiber filament. And, and it's really like still like this little antenna on this guy. It's solid, but it still flexes. If I go much it's further, an antenna. it's going to break. It's, supposed it's to an flex. antenna. The original antenna was rubber. And I'm like, boy, I, that, that justifies my purchase of some type of flexible PLA. But 
I digress. So yeah, it's going to be one of those things where it's going to have a new home in the company and we're going to print more often our fixturing stuff, like internal fixturing stuff for the CMM. I'd like to reprint a bunch of stuff because the guys have gotten used to knowing that the Prusas are good, but they're not as great as the bamboo lab printers. And so there's fitment issues. For example, the trays, we 3D print trays that go into our laser engraver, our fiber laser. And then that just locates and then those just, they wear out, they're inaccurate. There's a chance for a defect, obviously, that's a, a lean waste that we avoid. So I want to reprint them in carbon fibers just so that they last longer, they're more accurate, and then that'll will refresh our internal tooling. So I've actually gone pretty much the opposite direction. So I've got, we have two X1 carbons. Uh-huh. Our second one just came in today and is already printing parts, but I have several spools of carbon fiber filament and have not print, bothered printing with anything with it yet. One of the main reasons was that I bought a second machine with a second AMS was because we actually print a lot of color-coded things, Mm. little Kanban trays, all kinds of stuff where bright, high-visibility colors that can actually be matched up with other color-coded things at stations is a priority for me. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be constantly swapping filaments in and out and in and out to get this color or that color. So we basically wanted to have eight colors. I currently have seven loaded because I stupidly forgot to order black. And we use black pretty often. Anytime we want things just to blend into the background and not be distracting, we use black. So Mm -hmm. it's a good go-to. It looks fine. And being able to have blue and green, yellow, orange, purple, and have those not be a filament swap, just be, hey, throw it over to that printer, print it in purple, put it on that printer, print it in blue, is really helpful. But as we've been using 3D printers more, the number of times recently where I've wanted to print something quick and fast and found that somebody else has done a nice job optimizing a bed full of parts that's going to run for the rest of the day, and I go, oh, I can either mm. kill all the progress they've made to run my 30-minute print, or I can just stay late after work till theirs is done and then run mine. Or I can just leave this until tomorrow morning. Yep. And so just having a spare machine that I can almost always have access to, I won't get to choose my color necessarily, but I'll be able to just play around with something if I want to try an idea. Mm -hmm. That was valuable enough to me that putting a second printer on the floor made obvious sense. So we just ordered it and it showed right up, shipping super fast. Setup was really easy since I'm, I'm a big fan of twin machines. We have twin lasers. We have twin R450s. We have twin 3D printers. We have uh, a lot of our like our label printers and things in the shop all have twins so that anytime something goes down, we don't suddenly have to reconfigure a bunch of stuff. We can just move it over there and run it. Sure. Yeah. That's ideal. But I started out, I've been, one of our printers has PLA Tough in it and the other has regular PLA. And we're basically just side by siding them to see if there's a difference that we can mm-hmm. that we care about. Do you notice a difference? I have not really yet. We're yeah. not printing almost anything that we're trying to keep for very long term. A lot of it, things it, that we print right. get used for a month or two and then they get iterated and replaced. Mm-hmm. And so maximizing durability by spending money on the most durable filaments is an actual non-priority for me. Yeah. That's good. But I could yep. see, I wanted to have the option of printing carbon fiber. I wanted to have some carbon fiber filament on hand. We'll experiment with it at some point, and certainly it would open up the ability 
to make certain kinds of more structurally challenging, tough parts, which would give us new applications that we can 3D print for, which mm -hmm. is great. But the everyday in and out, get a quick idea, make a quick, cheap test piece approach. I want PLA, maybe PLA tough, really bright color, super fast printer, just get it out on the floor, try it out and adjust. And in the same way, a lot of our things do have magnets in them. We put magnets in all kinds of things, but I never print the magnets inside the part. Okay. I yeah. always design the magnets to be pressed in either from the side or in line in your sure. pocket because I am a magnet scavenger. We iterate these so rapidly that I have a little punch and hammer set that I just put these parts up on a bench and bang the, bang the magnets back out of them. Right. Because I always want to be able to recycle those magnets at nearly a buck a pop. Yeah. A fixture that's got eight or 10 magnets in it. Yeah. It's worth a minute and a half of my time to pop those guys back out. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We had some fixtures that the guys, like one guy embedded four magnets in there. And to break it apart, I'm thinking this is way, I'm trying to get four magnets that are $1.25 a piece. So it's $5 and I'm spending $10 and I'm getting scraped up because the inside of 3D printed parts is pretty gnarly if you break them open. But yeah, I was going to say, when you are embedding magnets in place, do you ever super glue them or you, do you always go for press? We just press fit. Okay. Yeah. That's always been a little tricky because you might have flow issues and now that hole that's supposed to be 375 or 370, it's suddenly like 358. <laughs> you know, what's, what's going on here? Well, the other thing that we mess around with is if you want your magnets to never pull out of the part, if you're going to remove, put it on surfaces and remove it often, then we normally try to bed into the pocket from the opposite direction of the magnetic holding force. So exactly. we dead end the magnet with a thin floor before whatever surface we're going to magnet to. But there's a limit. Like every little bit you move the magnet away from the surface, you decrease its holding force. So sometimes we will actually put in the magnet from the side we're going to magnet to, to be able to put the magnet literally directly against the, the metal surface. Sure. And then we just adjust our bore dimensions to make that a tighter press fit. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that means you get a little bit of crackling around the hole, but these are not cosmetic parts. We're not selling these. We're just making them for our own use. Yeah. And so when we're going from the opposite side and the magnetic holding force is going to retain the magnet in the pocket naturally, then we go nice and light finger press fit for other stuff where we need to stay. We print it so that you have to press it in with an arbor press. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Our go-to magnet size, three-eighths diameter, quarter-inch thickness, neodymium. I want to say the number is in the 40s, 42, if that's a standard like holding force. Okay. So let me ask this. When you press those in, when you take them out, have you ever considered melting them out? Nope. I wonder if anyone has, because I have not. I just need to talk to someone that has. So the reason I don't is it's so fast to punch them out because they're usually located close to a surface. All you need is a little pin punch and just tap it through the plastic from the other side and just drive them right out. Yeah, that's It takes that's true. seconds. Right. Yeah. I, so I'm designing the CMM fixtures. And for example, if you have a part that's being held flat, I'm going to put in a magnet from the bottom and it's going to be two layers of filament thick. So I typically print at 0.16 or 0.2 thickness. So it'd either be 0.32 or 0.4 millimeters thick. And then it goes in because you're right. That magnetic pull drops off pretty quickly. The more layers you go, yep. but all the 3d prints that I was salvaging magnets out of, well, I did it one time in full disclosure, but they were very deep. There was no way that I could punch them out. Well, they were encapsulated. That's what it was. So I, I needed to break them out, but I thought there's got to be a better way to, to do this. I, I'm, I'm going to use a torch next time. So. <laughs>
Get the, get Jay the flamethrower. Exactly. Hey, let me add this because uh, I think there's a lean teaching point or dis- at least a discussion point, but we don't color code things. We color things like this tool has a yellow band of paint on it. Therefore, it goes in the yellow drawer, but there's no code associated with it. Like, for example, if you go to the, the back of oh a, a Kenna Metal catalog, first of all, they're like- Oh, yeah. I'm not doing that. You need a, a degree in engineering, possibly a master's to decipher some of this stuff sometimes. So you go to the back and the materials are color-coded. So you're supposed to know that while you're flipping through the first hundred pages of the book, that green is- different types of aluminum. Non-ferrous. Yeah, non-ferrous. Orange is, what would it be? Some type of steel. Gray is the harder materials, the, the tool steels. That's a color code. We don't do that. You should not do that in lean. Lean is very much like simple. This is some color and this is the same color. They obviously go together. Eliminate yeah, the so codes. We color match. We don't color code. That's the term. Yep. Color, mm-hmm. color codes are an arbitrary assignment of a color to some unrelated value, some yeah. category or term or label. But we do things like we have two tooling carts. One of the tooling carts is green. One of the tooling carts is orange. We're in the process of replacing all of our cutter. We have little shallower bins in, a, in drawers, but we're going to be 3D printing a bunch more bins and we're going to color code all of our exclusively plastic cutting tools. Mm-hmm in orange bins to go on the orange cart that's only for plastic cutting tools. And all of our metal cutting tools are going to go in green bins. They go with the green cart. That's all metal cutting tools. Now, do we need somebody to see orange and automatically think metal cutting? No. But if you're taking a holder off the green cart to get a fresh cutter for it, that's going to be in a green bin in the tool chest. Yes. Love it. That's the way to do it. So you do have two setup carts. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Well, we, they're just tool carts. They're not setup carts. We don't have hand tools on them. They just hold holders. Okay, got it. Yeah. Going back to 3D printing, do you 3D print your holster prototypes? No. Hmm. I would think that's a natural thing. Have you tried it? We've messed around with it a little bit. It doesn't actually find me anything particularly useful mm. because the layout of a compression form mold where the part is butterflied out flat is very different from 3D printing a 3D shell of the thing, full 360. Mm -hmm. And when you take into account shrinkage and the difference in texture between a pressed finish on an extruded sheet versus the the striated pattern of a printed layered thing, uh, it would give us only the lowest resolution input about where things were and how they fit. And then we would have to backtrack from there and branch to turn that mold into what we wanted for our actual thermoforming process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And so it's kind of just a side quest. There are applications where it would make sense. Certainly, if we were designing a part for injection molding, then it would make sense to do a lot of 3D prints. And oftentimes when we are designing parts for injection molding, we do 3D print those. And normally the workflow there is we 3D print with FDM. Until we're very, very close. And then we outsource for solid multi-jet fusion printing. So we have a completely solid nylon part, mm-hmm. 100% fill that more closely mimics the physical properties that we'll be looking at once the part's injection molded. And that then gives us a full, fully assemblable, but not necessarily fully functional part. But when we're just rough checking, hey, is there enough clearance here? Is that channel the right size? Is it in the right place? 
Is that little lever or latch or thing on the gun going to snag on the way in or out? Yeah, you can 3D print for that. But those are usually not that hard to get right. And it's one of these things where you have a plus zero minus, but a wide plus tolerance in a lot of cases. If I need to clear a particular latch or lever on the side of the gun, I do not have to have that channel be exactly the size and shape of the latch or lever. Yeah. It's okay to enlarge it and widen it and smooth it and draft it a little bit. That actually makes it a more ergonomic shape if it's going to be pressed against your body. We don't want everything necessarily right on the numbers. And there are manufacturing variations in the parts that the gun manufacturers put on their guns. There are also lots and lots of aftermarket parts that fit a little differently and are a little different in width, a little different in height. The two classic things people always ask about are slide release levers and magazine release buttons. And there are lots and lots of companies and almost always aftermarket means wider, thicker, and especially taller because people want the buttons to be easier to press. They want them to be a larger shape so they're harder to miss. And there are lots of accessories on the market that our holsters just aren't compatible for because we can't make a thing that fits every possible permutation that somebody dreamed up and made. Right. So we normally restrict ourselves to it will fit any factory version of the gun because Glock makes several different versions of their slide lock, slide release lever. Uh They make a slim one. They make a taller, more aggressive one for competition use. And we accommodate all of those. But if you have some wacky weirdo aftermarket latch from some company that decides to completely change the shape, so the latch is just totally different, then no, you're out of luck. We don't do that. Okay. So I'm thinking of my HK USP 9. Mm-hmm. It has the decocking lever on the mm-hmm. thumb just behind the trigger. There could be an aftermarket lever that I could add on that might be wider, thicker, taller, something like that. Do you approach it that, hey, there is a really popular add-on from this company or Geisley makes this. And then you say, let's just create the holster so that if someone does buy it, it's compatible with that. Sometimes, yes. If we can gain that compatibility without sacrificing anything else that we care about. Because anytime you add more shapes or you make the shapes larger on the holster, you are making the holster less ergonomic against the human body. True. So we're trying to to find the best balance of accommodates common, good quality aftermarket accessories and does not accommodate stupid counterproductive junk that people want to bolt onto their pistol. Right. And there's no shortage of companies that are just selling gimmicky garbage. Uh And if we actually want to strain those products out and we want to require non-compatibility with certain things. Yeah, there's a constant tension. There are lots of good companies making good aftermarket parts. And certainly when we are aware of specific aftermarket components for certain guns that are widely adopted by the kind of users that are our market, then if we can accommodate them, we try to. We won't bend over backwards to accommodate some fringe or marginal piece that we get asked about once in a blue moon. But we're not trying to kill the fun for everybody and say, you have to leave your pistol exactly stock or you can never put it in anything that we make. Right. But that's always a balance. There are lots of different companies that make sights for pistols. And that's one of the areas where we can make the sight channel in the holster tall enough to accommodate basically any ridiculously tall sights that anybody wants to put on their gun. And this is mostly common when you have people who have a red dot optic on their sight, on their their slide. 
and they want their front and rear sights to be tall enough that they stand up taller than the base on the optic so you can co-witness and look through the optic and still see your iron sights. I see. And in most cases, that's actually not even that useful and it clutters up your sight picture, but it's very popular to have really tall sights on your handgun if you've got an optic. Well, we can, without making any ergonomic sacrifices in wearing the holster, make that channel pretty tall because that lies parallel to the human body, not toward it. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want a small decocking lever because it's on my, I'm right-handed. It's on my thumb, which is on the left side of the, the which is firearm. Against your body. Which would be, yeah, yep. I, I would not want that. So. And even levers like decocking levers, like a lot of guns, they can be configured to either have a safety or a decocking lever. CZ does this a lot. HK does this for some of their guns. And mm -hmm. if you have a decocker, the lever basically defaults to the down position. When you decock, the lever's down. And so most of the time, the gun's going to go in the holster with the lever down. If you use it as a safety where you're carrying cocked and locked with the hammer back and your safety on, mm -hmm. your lever's going to default to up. Yep. And so you have to have the blocking in the holster accommodate either holstering with the up or the down position. And people get way wrapped around the axle about this because guys who want to carry cocked and locked, they say, oh man, I want the holster to only allow the gun in the holster when that is cocked and locked. I okay. don't want there to be room for the gun to be holstered up with the safety off. I always want, I want the holster to actually contact like the lever it? and force it into the safe position. Yeah. Wow. And I'm like, yeah, but anybody who's got a decocker yeah. can't use that holster. Right. And is there no circumstance ever, anytime when you would ever put a decocked, an uncocked safety off gun in a holster? What if you're holstering a completely empty gun? <laughs> right. And yeah. so generally our approach is we design our holsters to not interact with safeties or decockers. Okay. We design it to clear those levers in the up or the down position because the holster should not be an, a substitute for you knowing and managing the condition of your firearm at all times. If it's in your hand and it's going to go into the holster, you should know whether you have a round chambered, you should know the status of the firearm. You should not be just slamming into the holster and trusting the holster is going to do a job that you couldn't be bothered to do and ensure that your safety is engaged. Yeah. Your holster does one thing and it does one thing well. It properly secures your firearm in a concealed manner, in a comfortable concealed manner. We, we normally break it down, depending on who you're talking to, I say either three or four things. And the first thing is it completely covers and protects the trigger guard. So the trigger is not exposed. Mm -hmm. It securely attaches the firearm to your person and it allows you to have quick and consistent access to the firearm. Mm -hmm. And depending on how you define those categories, some of those things kind of bleed into each other. But a holster that doesn't fully cover the trigger guard should not be used. That's right. A holster that covers the trigger guard, great, and it, but doesn't reliably attach to your belt and occasionally just like pops off, the clip is junky and doesn't hold on well, shouldn't be used. A holster that has good trigger coverage and a good belt clip, but puts the holster in such a position on your body that you can't reliably access it quickly, shouldn't be used. Right. But that one's not so much an ongoing safety issue. It just means you won't be able to use the firearm to defend yourself if you need it. Yeah. A holster that doesn't reliably protect the trigger guard or the classic problem of, I have a holster for a gun. It's not exactly the gun I have, but you can sort of get it to fit. It sort of fits in there. That almost always results in 
a visible compromise to the security of the trigger. Yeah. Because if the trigger guard is designed around the gun, it can cover the whole trigger guard. It should cover the whole trigger guard. But even if the most of the other overall dimensions are the same, if your gun can get like 90% of the way into the holster, but not 100% of the way into the holster, because it's not quite the right model, almost always you're going to leave some gap at the trigger guard that should not be there. Right. So- yeah, I People was uh, like, well, is this close enough? Can I just put that in that? No, no. We strongly discourage you from doing that. We recommend against it. That's literal like life, death, or serious injury. Why would you compromise something like that? Well, this is a classic problem where the odds are very, very low, mm-hmm. but the stakes are very, very high. There you go. Yep. And just like the idea of the law of large numbers, people lose their ability to conceptualize things accurately when the numbers get big enough. Mm-hmm. Like it, yeah. it doesn't, it just doesn't compute. Yeah. When we deal with things that have very low odds, but extremely high risk, we do not accurately assess the consequences of making those odds slightly higher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a great like, point. Hey, if there's a one in a million chance of this, but if it happens, I'm dead. Uh-huh. And I make some little change that makes it a three in a million chance. I have tripled my chances of dying. Yeah. <laughs> Still I, unlikely, but it's not like, oh, you know, eh. So last time I think we talked about my kids are playing soccer. And so YouTube is serving me soccer videos and it suggested this video that I absolutely had to watch. It's this New Zealand women's defender where she scores within the first 30 minutes, three, the term is own goals. Yep. And it's never happened in the history of professional soccer. There's, well, there's one other guy that it happened to, but when you review the footage, it actually did go off. Him as a defender, it hit him and it went off of a guy that's on offense and then it went in, but it was incidental. But this girl, it almost looks like she's playing for the other team. I was thinking about the odds of that. Like what happens when something like that happens uh, and you're forever enshrined on YouTube for being stupid. So like three years ago or so, there was a play where, who was it? Uh, I want to say the, I do know it was the Pirates. I can't remember who they were playing, but there was a two outs, runner on third base, guy hits a little dribbler to, I don't remember the first baseman. In baseball, he could have just backpedaled, stepped on first base, innings over. But the runner running to first base stops and starts backpedaling. The first baseman chases him down back to home plate. Everyone's laughing, going, what is this guy doing? Meanwhile, the runner at third runs and breaks to the plate and the first baseman freaks out and throws it to the catcher. The catcher misses the tag that did not need to be applied. Like that runner in the rules of baseball, he can touch home plate. They're going to call him safe. But as if the ball gets to first base before the hitter, innings over, that run does not count. It's not what's called the timing play. That first baseman literally stopped playing baseball in the United States. He went (laughs) over to Korea or Japan, and he said it was a contributing factor. I would forever be known as that guy, like the the modern-day Bill Buckner of baseball. And I just think about that. And those one in a million, or how many plays have there been with two outs, runner on third, little dribbler down the first baseline? First baseman just picks it up. Usually the runner goes, I'm obviously out. I'm just going to walk up to him. He's going to tag me on the butt. We're done. Or backpedal, touch the bag, move on. 
but what are the chances? And darn it, if it will, if it can happen, eventually it will happen. Yep. And yeah, I can totally see as a firearms accessory manufacturer, how you have to design for the lowest possible chances. And so when you go from one in a million to three in a million, that's the right mentality. And it scares me that there are lots of holster manufacturers that probably don't put in the diligence that you do. There's lots of manufacturers of lots of things that don't put in enough diligence. But yep. Yep. we started off at 3D printing and we have been uh, adding some other equipment in our shop as well. So our Rotovice is alive. We yeah. have our T200 install and there was some shenanigans around that too. Apparently, one of the drives that got shipped was defective. So our tech came down. He did the full installation. We could not clear some of the alarms. He was mm. frustrated. We were frustrated. We weren't sure what was going on. Ran out of time for the day. He had to scoot. He was booked the next day. We had a different tech in. And he basically just started from scratch, rechecked all the parameter settings, checked all the wiring. Everything looked good. He couldn't clear the alarms. And we ended up just pulling the drive, resetting a bunch of stuff, and everything seemed to go away. And then we reconnect the drive and all these alarms show up again. And so they actually contacted the drive manufacturer and had a replacement drop shipped. Mm-hmm. And so that tech was back yesterday. And in the meantime, we've, just, we've got the T200 in, it's all set up, the Rotovice is on it, but we can't actually use it yet. Mm. And yesterday he was down, fresh drive, got it installed, checked a couple more parameters, cleared the alarms, and we're in business. So wow. I finally have fourth axis capability in the shop. It only I took me it. from 2015 to now to get my first fourth axis. I love it. So but you have, how many machines total do you have? We have five machines. Five. Two Speedio 700s, mm-hmm. one R650, and two R450s. Okay. So you've had a total of 15 axes you could move, and this is technically your 16th. That's probably going to be the biggest upgrade, I would suppose. I hope so. Should be yeah. awesome. Yeah. We have lots of ideas for things to do with it. Okay. We have a few immediately actionable things, and then a whole bunch of ideas that are like, oh, well, that would actually become more feasible. You know what? We get that response a lot. With, yeah, we get that with our vacuum systems because people buy our vacuum chucks for that quote unquote one job. They get comfortable with it. They know surface area, all that stuff. And then they start using it for everything. And it, that's not what it's intended to do because they're like, oh, I had this big piece of material. It was 12 by 16. And yeah, we could hold it in a couple of double vices, but we're just surfacing it. That's where I go, okay, I, I want to hear from my customers to see what they're actually doing. But you know, when that big crash, I go, well, that's something that I always say publicly in the videos. If you can hold it with a vice, do it. That is a theoretically unlimited amount of holding power. Vacuum has an upper limit of 14 pounds per square inch. Yep. So, but tell me, because it's been quite a bit of time, you ordered the Rotovice. How did you attach it to your T200? Lang plate. Lang plate. Okay. All right. Yep. So we ordered the Rotovice with just four stud positions on it. We had to get a custom Lang plate made, give them some specs for where we wanted the alignment holes, board, and things. And then they got that to us, and the T200 showed up. We got that in. Uh, Brother offers two options. We had, we had looked at really thinking about how we want to lay out. And a lot of guys, when they're putting a T200 on an S series, a Speedio 700 or an 1000, they are using an extension plate to hang part of the footprint of the rotary off the table and maximize their available X. It mm-hmm. just sits out over the wave covers. All that's great. Yeah. On the R series machines, you can't do that because you have to clear the bulkhead wall on your rotation with the quick change table. Mm-hmm. So, so really quick for reference for people that are listening. Picture a horizontal machine center. It's got that 180 table that spins. 
Yes. So that's horizontal the without a pallet pool. Yes. It's just mm-hmm. two tables on a rotor on an axis and it rotates in and back out the same direction. It cannot do continuous. It doesn't do 360. It does 180 in, 180 back out. Right. Right. So mm-hmm. you can always have a lot of our almost all of our fixturing on those machines up till now, up till the rotovice, has been an MPS on each table, a standardized aluminum subplate on top of the MPS that has alignment and pokey yoke pins in it, and then a series of different interchangeable part specific fixtures that bolt down to that subplate and have passed through vacuum to secure our thin plastic parts on that fixture. I love that setup. That's incredible. It's so was really that well. was that a brother option where you could run a utility like air to the table and it's on kind of like a rotary union? No, we actually drilled our table centers ourselves. There's okay. just sheet metal plates. Well, they're not sheet metal. They're relatively thick steel plates in the middle. And we just took those out and then put uh, swivel tees, swivel elbows, one oh. on each side and then plumbed air up with a Y just below the table to a separate quarter inch hose feeding to each side of the bulkhead wall. Gotcha. Okay. Super simple and cheap. Yeah. Did you buy VAC watches from us or did we just talk we have about have a VAC watch. We have not installed it yet because we still have to figure out the integration of the, the complication of using a VAC watch when you have two vacuum tables in play and only one is active at a time. Yeah. yeah. The actual layout of how that's going to work, as far as I understand it conceptually, we have a single pressurized airline split into a Y feeding air on either side of the bulkhead wall to two separate smart vac systems. And we want the vac watch to be watching only the smart vac that's on the active table inboard on the machine. Right. Which means at some point in the QT table rotation, the vac watch is going to have to switch which table it's watching. Because at that moment of transition, both tables will be under vacuum. But as soon as the active table comes out and is the loading table, the operator is going to turn off the vacuum. Mm-hmm. And if the vac watch is still watching that table, it's going to alarm the machine out. Yeah. And so something where we have an M code triggering a solenoid, a Y solenoid, that actually switches the negative pressure line feed from table one to table two so that the vac watch is only seeing the table that's headed into the cutting area and not still monitoring the table that comes out. The other way to do it would be two vac watches, one for each table, constantly connected, no solenoids, no wires, no nothing. But fundamentally, I like that way less first cost, mm-hmm. doubles the cost of adding vac watches. It enables the possibility of you not having matching settings when you should have matching settings. Anytime you have parallel systems and they're manual and they're not interconnected, you have to do twice as much work. This is the same thing we had with the quick tables in general is we have G54 set on table one. We have G56 set on table two. That's a standardized top center of our subplate probed in position. And we had been having to post two versions of each program, one at G54 and one at G56. Hmm. But the way that the QT table system on Brother works is you have to manually designate which program you want to run when table one is in and which program you want to run when table two is in. The machine doesn't look at the program look at which table is in, and then alternate between work coordinate systems based on which table is in. It treats Mm. all work coordinate systems as though they're all on the same active table. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And so what we ended up doing was writing a macro sub program that gets called at the top. It gets put in by our post processor. 
It calls a macro program that checks to see the degrees of rotation of the axis of the quick table and then designates either GPT-4 or GPT-6 to make sure the program runs on the relevant coordinate for the table that's in board. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That in principle allowed us to cut the number of programs on our machines in half. Mm-hmm. And if we needed to make an edit to a program, we post one program and the change immediately applies to both tables where before we would have to either go into the two versions of the program because I, I would always, rather than posting one and then manually editing it and resending it as a second copy, I would always build those as two. I'd build the first one as a complete setup and then I would duplicate it, adjust the work coordinate system and then have those two so I could post them straight from cam all the way to the machine and not have to do any hand editing in between. The mm-hmm. trade-off is anytime you want to change anything, you want to change a lead in, a lead out, a feed rate, anything, you either have to go into both versions and make the changes manually in parallel, or you delete the second one, make your change in the first one, duplicate it again, and then have to redo your work coordinate reset stuff. There were these constant just angle all these gotchas. Yeah, there's all these little things where, ah, 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 you didn't do those in the right order. Now it's all messed up. (laughs) And because of the way our fixtures are designed, we're often vacuum gasketing very small available flat zones under Mm -hmm. the part where since we're, these are dry machines, we're not machining aluminum risers in place. I'm aligning these MPS, MPS bases and then indicating them in. So they're not in exactly the same place on the two tables. If we're out from each other in an eighth of an inch in X, that might cause us to nick into the fixture enough along some 2D profile to violate a vacuum zone. Yep. And then all of a sudden, boom, the whole thing goes away. Yeah, right. I feel like you're really an industry leader in like how you've hacked all these systems. Because first of all, to run a CNC machine dry is an outlier in itself. To run a CNC machine that has like the R series, two yep. tables, that's more rare. And then to integrate something that isn't a factory integration, like plumbing a utility to both sides and then monitoring it. Like that's, I got to say, that's pretty admirable. We don't, we don't have the VAC watch working yet, but I'm excited about it. But I know and you will. I know you yeah, have oh, that no, capability. We'll definitely yeah. get there. And yeah. we're also not fully up and running with the air knife thing that I showed off on Instagram a few weeks ago. Right. And the main reason was after talking to brother, they encouraged me to make sure that my air pressure through the spindle does not fall below a certain safe minimum because however the rotary union coupling everything in there is done, it requires some certain minimum amount of pressure to stay sealed. Mm -hmm. And if you under-pressurize it, it will leak. Okay. And so if we were going to do that, they asked us to install some kind of inline minimum pressure switch that will alarm the machine if the main air feed of the machine can't supply enough pressure to that line. Uh Uh-huh. And I'm not actually super worried about that because we've got two air compressors running in parallel yep. and the second one's threshold is a little bit lower. So if, if we drop, we keep our shop air at 102, 103-ish mm-hmm. and the first compressor kicks on in the low 90s, the second compressor kicks on in the high 80s. So if we ever had for some reason tons of air consumption all at once, the second compressor would kick on and it'd yep. be fine. Now, obviously, if we had a blowout in a line and our system is just free flowing oh. out. Yeah, pretty got more problems. We're going to get to a point where the machines are going to alarm out because they're not seeing enough air pressure at all. Yeah, of course. That's your core problem right there. Yeah, I got a blowout, not low air pressure to your machine. Right, right. Yeah. Have you- Really quick, can I- Have you messed around with any of those auto kinds of systems that check for a sudden drop in air pressure that would indicate a blowout and then close off the tanks on your machines? 
Uh, okay, I've only heard about them. I think Saunders and Grimsman were talking about it way back, yep. almost like a pneumatic fuse. But it, yep. it sounded like, I think John uh, Saunders was saying it's more of like a mechanical thing. It sees a CFM that's way higher than the consumption rate, and then it would just automatically seal itself. I just don't see that happening. If you've seen our shop tour videos, at some point we we went with this, what's it called, rapid air type system. Yep. And it's big. We, we went with either the inch and a half or the two inch diameter pipe. And there's lots of volume in there. It, it adds like 35 or 40 um, gallons, just the piping alone. But something really significant would have to happen for us to have a blowout. We've like had airlines crash. Yeah. Or yeah. Or some fitting an O-ring rots or something. And then the coupling was loose and now it blows. I have considered it because we have, let's see, two 240 gallon tanks. So 480 gallons plus another 40 <laughs> that could essentially drain within seconds. Yeah, it is It is kind of a concern. It's not a concern that I've put to the top of my list, but uh, probably something I should look into. I wish someone could just tell me what I need to buy. <laughs> so I burnt out on doing a research. But going back to the VacWatch, I was thinking that maybe we should um, reconnect. I will reconnect with my guy, Carlos, because it sounds like in that application, we might be able to do some type of custom software okay. where one of because we have multiple inputs. So so the VacWatch, it has, let me think here, five, I think it has six data inputs. Two of them might be for voltage plus and minus or neutral. I'm speaking off the cuff. I can't really think of all the terminology. But one of the, the pins is remote engagement, disengagement. So that's something where, for example, we built them for Haas. Haas is pretty straightforward because it will have a circuit that only gets monitored when the spindle turns. And that's the fixture clamp input. Yep. Whereas on other machines, I know we've done brothers in the past and robo drills and Dusons, where you'll need to fire a solenoid that remotely enables the VAC watch, turns it to the on position. And you do that at the top of the program with an M code, and then you turn it off at the end with another M code because it doesn't have that ability, that fixture clamp input. I, I wanna, you can Google Haas fixture clamp input, and I'm sure it'll come up with some instructions. And that goes all the way back to, I want to say like 2007 on those machines. But yeah, it sounds like we could probably use that input to select which side you're monitoring. Um, Interesting. Yeah. There's something there. There is okay. definitely something there. Yeah. I, I want to dig deep in that because you know we want to design for the, the mainstream, like the, the big fat portion of the bell curve, but there's those corner cases that if it takes like 10 extra lines of code, and one new sentence or paragraph in the instruction sheet, even if it's internal to us, we can do that. Because I know that Carlos and I, I'm a big proponent of simplicity. Back in the day when we developed the original VacWatch, he said, hey, let's do this remote enable switch. And I'm like, ah, I don't know. It, ah, I, it's, I want to keep it simple. And he said, let me just do it. I won't publicize it. We have sold so many VacWatches because of that one accessory. So it's not like I'm eating humble pie. Like I hats off to him. Like I said, yeah, put it in. We'll kind of soft announce it. If it comes up in conversation, you could just mention that there's a remote enable switch and the response from the customers in those types of phone calls is elation. They're going, you got to be kidding. That's amazing. Yeah. And so that's a great customer experience. They're wondering, they're questioning it. And then we hit them with this thing. You can absolutely do that. It's an Easter egg and it's on the shelf. You can have it tomorrow if you want. That's like, how do you not close that sale? But yeah. yeah, you have the VacWatch Zero, which is a no frills version. 
slightly, it's not really a selling point, but the software is a little bit trimmed down. The original VacWatch had an array of lights that kind of indicated your vacuum level. But what that required is a separate LED driver chip that we could not get through 2020, 21, 22. I don't even think we can mm. still get it in 23. And then there was a different architecture that we were working on that used a CAN bus based architecture, which is in every vehicle. And so those chips dried up. So we were ready to launch the VacWatch 2 and then had to pull that. The, the de- design's done. If we can get the chips in stock, it, some of the things in 2021, they said, oh, they're going to come out maybe uh, late Q, uh, what was it? Q4 of 2024. And I'm like, that's three years away. <laughs> How are we supposed to launch a product? So the version you have is the VacWatch Zero, which we call the no frills version. It is faster. The integrations are easier. The, it, it runs off a of USB power, wider. I think it's a wider voltage operating range. It was already pretty wide. We're keeping all the things. The only thing that it, that it is missing is the, the light bar, the array. But once you set it, you really should not be messing with your threshold level. I always say if you're at 24 inches of mercury or higher, if you're below 24, it's unsafe. But there are those things like, for example, I bought that large format CNC wood wood router that you cannot pull it into double digits vacuum levels, but that's okay because it's wood and there's not the type of cutting forces. There are cutting forces that go into it, but the cutting force resistance of wood is incredibly multiple times lower than metal. So you don't need to apply 26, 27, 28 inches of mercury to your workpiece. Six, seven, or eight inches of mercury will be fine across a giant four by eight piece of plywood. So no, I think there's something that we can work on for you and then probably integrate it for future customers. Wait. Yeah. It's really cool. Hey, a quick question on the Lang plate. What exactly did they have to modify? They had to add four bores to it. And I don't recall if those were the mounting bores or the alignment. I think those were the four through bores for the mounting bolts that attach it to the face of the T200. Okay. So in my mind, the face of the T200 has eight small, to me, they're uncomfortably small holes. Like M8s, maybe? Does your M10s. M10s? Okay. That's what yours looks like. But it attaches with four of those. Four of those. There yours doesn't have a a, a bolt hole circle pattern of eight. It's all assembled and I don't remember. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because we this, started this making one adapter of those plates. where I uh-huh. I was gone from the shop almost the entire day the main installation happened. Okay. And it's one of those things where I actually don't want to try to dive in and learn everything about this. I just want to know enough to program for it and have the ability to use it. Yep. I don't really intend to become an expert in all the various possibilities and combinations of laying plates and mounting patterns and all this stuff. It's just like, you know what? I just want it to work. Let's make yep. it a quick change so we can take the rotor vise off and on. One thing we did not do that we are going to do whenever we take the rotor vise off next and then put it back on is pokey oak pin the interface between the rotor vise and the lang plate somehow. Hmm. I'm not sure exactly what we're going to do, but somehow so that we can't clock at 180. Right. Which made me think, I believe the 1234 or ABCD jaw locations on the rotor vise are engraved, but they're on the body and they end up under the vise jaw. Is that correct? Yeah. Have you thought about engraving them like on the ends of the screwdriver? Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things. So originally... You don't need those jaw locations engraved if you're spinning perfectly on center. 
But in reality, nothing spins perfectly on center. This is what we do in-house. So we have four rotovices on four of the seven Haas pallets in our horizontal. And the guys said, look, we have four rotovices and there's four jaw stations. We need to engrave these. And so they did. It'd be like A, one, two, three, four, B, one, two, three, four, which is great. The reason that those jaw stations, we engrave them in the body, but you have to remove what's called the fixed jaw carrier. When you lift it up, then you can see. In fact, there's a a video that just went live this past weekend that shows you that when you remove it and it's how to install your rotovice. But yes, it is one of those things that we're going to start doing moving forward. It was a decision. It's probably a bad decision I made on my part to just keep things simple. Uh, For the vast majority of applications, rotovice is going to be for first operations which typically doesn't need to have high accuracy, as in the raw stock is perfectly yeah, your margins located. Your margin stock. Yeah, it's just cutting bar stock. But we're seeing more and more customers that are like, no, this thing kicks butt. We're doing it for op one, and then we flip it over, and it's op two, and we're crushing it. Yeah, that's a great argument for why the OEM Pearson Workholding should be engraving those vice jaws. Part of me knows that it's going to open up an opportunity for defects in our assembly process because chances are, like we just we opened up talking about chances, that of all the road devices we're going to ship, at some point there's going to be jaws that go out that say one, two, three, three instead of one, two, three, four. Mm-hmm. And we just need to shore up our process if we're going to go that direction. So it, yes, it's obviously impossible. if it's engraved on the body, it gets one, two, three, four on a single piece of cast iron. Yeah, and that's easy. And you can't miss it. But it's not evidence. That's the thing. That's that's on us. I'll own that. So interesting. Yeah, I think that's the the solution. Not on the carriers. The carriers can get messed up. But yeah, I would I like them on the carriers too, because there's guys that cut their soft jaws and they're holding it, and there's going to be micro variations. Let's call a micro variation something under one thou of an inch. And then if you swap it between a, a, a number one jaw carrier and and it, it was shipped in the number one jaw carrier position. And then suddenly it gets reassembled and it's in two or three or four, it's going to be slightly different somehow. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, it's something we're going to, we're revamping the rotovice, some of the internal components. It'll never be noticed by the customer, but I'm literally working. Actually, my Bamboo Lab 3D printer that's running behind me. I don't know if you've caught that. It's actually printing some of the new components because I'm going to share that tomorrow with the production team and get their feedback. But that's one of the things that we're going to start doing is more evident engraving. So, because I've just seen it, even on Instagram, guys are engraving or, or even writing on them with Sharpie. So, not a great solution, but it's a quick and dirty solution. Yeah. And having that from the OEM would just be a little bit of relatively low cost value add. Yeah, very much so. Yep. That yeah. we would appreciate. Yep. So, yep. in our little spreadsheet of stuff we talk about on this podcast in future episodes, we got lean colors, do's and don'ts. That's the color coding versus color matching thing. Mm-hmm. I had actually asked, set aside a question that got bumped to the next episode, but I'm going to bump it back up and ask it right now, which is, okay. what would it take to get you to sell your company? Hmm. Man, I actually got a call from a, like a, a broker that handles businesses. And I said, oh, thank you. No, I'm not really interested in selling. He says, well, at any point in time, would you be interested? And I said, theoretically, yeah. And he said, can we put a rough date on that? And I said, 2060? And he paused and he said, oh, like the year 2060? 
yes, sir, 2060. And oh, wow, why that long? I said, man, I'm just getting started. I'm about to crush this business. We're going to blow up. No, I would never sell now. So I have actually answered that question. I just love what I do. I really enjoy what I'm doing. I have some new ventures that I'm, I'm not ready to talk about yet, but I'll probably put it out first on this podcast that I'm just really excited about. So I'm in my prime, I feel. Or at least I'm going to look back one day and realize you were in your prime or your past your prime, or I don't want to waste these years. What about you? What were your thoughts? So this had come up because I was talking to a few of my other friends who own businesses. When we first started our businesses, we were all in our mid to late 20s. Yep. And we were all young, hungry, and broke. And the idea of building a business that would be worth selling even wasn't really on the horizon. We were thinking about trying to build businesses that made enough money to pay us a reliable salary. Like I need a job that will pay me enough to provide for my family. Yep. And none of us were approaching at all 10 years ago building our businesses with anything like the Michael Gerber Emith approach of building a franchise prototype of a business model that is saleable, where mm-hmm. you are not the beating heart of the business. If we take you out and the business collapses, it's not a mature business. And I'm much closer to that maturity point now, but still, if, if I was taken out of the business, my company would have lost something very significant, probably critical. Mm. But the idea that building a mature business is good no matter the size of the business. It's not like, oh, if you want to do $20 million in revenue a year, you need to be a mature business. But if you only want to do a million dollars in revenue a year, totally fine to not be a mature business. Be founder-centric. You are the integral hub. Everything has to go through you. You get the the privilege of continuing to be the bottleneck, and that's fine. And the reality is at almost any size, any scale, a mature business where the owner, operator, founder is no longer the linchpin that holds the business together is better for the business overall. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't want to sell the business, you get sick sometimes. Stuff yeah, happens. That's right. Yeah. I call that the so, hub and spoke business structure where yeah, the owner everything is has the to hub. go back to the hub to go out to the next adjacent spoke. It's a mess. Yeah. And, and that is the worst style of business structure. Absolutely. And you know what? That happens to micromanagers. Um, I've actually been, to expand on this topic, I've been thinking a lot about what makes a good business owner, a good entrepreneur. Uh, we've talked about E-Myth Revisited. You got the technician, you got the manager, you got the entrepreneur. I had this really interesting conversation with a customer and a sharp guy, like PhD, literal PhD in his signature. And he was very kind. He was giving me compliments about learning a lot from the channel, which is humbling because I left college faster than you could say college to start this company. And he said, no, I've really enjoyed watching you grow your company over the years. You're certainly better at business than I am. And this is a PhD. So I started thinking, like, what is important in building a good, solid business? I, I don't think it's intelligence. I don't think it's things like pure technical skills. Like certainly a Steve Jobs was not a, a technical guy, but he had a Wozniak, Steve Wozniak. It really comes down to, I think it's a mixture of creativity curiosity and the ability to just go run with ideas and throw caution to the wind. Good. Calculated cautioned. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. you can't just be reckless. But certainly, I don't think I've ever been reckless in business. 
the new venture I'm doing, it would probably be the most reckless thing, but it's fun. I, I enjoy it and I, I have a plan. I've built a team around it and it's I, probably in a few months, I'll talk about it publicly. Cool. But you know, I've given that a lot of thought that there's some great technicians that go into business that they hate it because that technician at their previous job, they were the hub. And then suddenly they're making more money, but it's more stressful and they're trading the currency of time uh, and stress for money. And, and so it's just, it turns into a mess. I, f- I really do feel like in a way, one of the things that haunts me is that I may have painted Pearson Workholding into a corner, certainly myself into a corner, because it is a very public forward-facing company with me as the personality behind all the videos. Sure. And so if I were taken out of the equation, a potential buyer would say, oh, but you don't get to go. It'd be like if we found out that Mark Terryberry got fired from Haas and then popped up and suddenly he's doing Doosan or Akuma videos, I would subscribe to that because I'm used to and I know and I like Mark Terryberry. He's a personality. So yeah, it, it, that is the tricky thing. I know that if I were to sell Pearson Workholding, that would be the tricky part. And that's something that, uh, for example, I take every Wednesday out of office. That's when I actually do my critical thinking and the business runs just fine. Earlier in this podcast season, we talked about leaving for vacation. Our companies run just fine without us. Do they grow? Arguably, maybe not. Do they grow as fast as they would have? Probably not if we were out. But it is one of those things that it, it is a factor and it is something that we're well com- we should be well compensated for because we're the chief architects of a lot of our products. We're, if, if we're not that, we're the, the face behind the brand. Certainly our our companies both use our last names in them. So yeah, it is one of those things. It's, it's a double-edged sword. You, you build your company based on a personality or a brand and that personality goes away. That's not good. Yeah. The, the question that I got asked at the end of the conversation was, do you want Henry Holsters to be a holster company forever? And in keeping with the idea that we work on the process and the process makes the products, mm-hmm. it isn't the case that I have some fundamental commitment to being only in the holster space for the rest of my business life. What I find compelling about the holster space is that we are dealing directly with end users, supplying them with tools to enable them to save their life or the lives of others. Mm-hmm. And the banner we have on the wall in the shop in Bay One says, We give the good guys, tools to win their fight. And I find that to be a compelling vision. We're not making incidental widgets and doodads that people buy for a lark and then stick in a drawer somewhere. If our customers have to use our product for real, they need it at that moment, it's going to be one of the worst days of their life, Mm -hmm. if not the worst day of their life. Mm -hmm. And if we can be a reliable part of them solving that problem and living to tell about it, I am all in on that. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of other commodity incidental products. Like I know a lot of guys made a lot of fidget spinners and a lot of guys made a lot of money making fancy fidget spinners in the 2017, 2018. Yeah. And I played around with it. I designed one, but I looked at it and went, am I really compelled by this? If this were to become successful, is this what I want my company to be about? Sure. Do I want to have to turn down other opportunities to maintain fidget spinner production numbers? Yeah. And I so immediately, viscerally went, no, I don't want to be that. I don't want to do that. And it's not that fidget spinners are bad or have no utility or aren't helpful to people. It's totally fine. 
free mm-hmm. country, make whatever you like. Sure. But I found it to be a completely uncompelling vision for mm-hmm. me as a company t- to say like, hey, we make neat little things that people like to play with is for many people completely sufficient as yep. a vision for their company. And we get paid well to do it. Awesome. Doesn't motivate me. Mm-hmm. Doesn't make me care because part of the reason why I can make myself be so detail oriented and make myself go through so many revisions and so much testing and be so particular about the product is because I believe emotionally and I understand logically that the quality of my product actually matters. It is life and death gear. That is not like, oh yeah, we have the world's best thingamabugger because we want it to be the best. And so we're super intense about it. But really, if we were a little bit off, nothing happens. Yeah. Except that we don't get to pat ourselves on the back and say that ours is the best of the best. Mm -hmm. So when it came to the idea of selling my company, I'm really okay with the idea of selling my company. I'm not in a hurry to sell my company. And Mm -hmm. I feel like I really am just starting to hit my stride. Yeah. Which is itself a little distressing to think it's taken more than 10 years to hit my stride. Totally. But you learn at the pace you learn. Yeah. If I could leap back knowing the things that I know now, could I grow the company to where it is right now in way less time? Of course, but anybody could. Anybody competent in business, if you rewound their life 10 years and they got to retain the knowledge and lessons learned in that period of time, it's just like playing a video game. When you play it for the very first time and you're exploring and you've never been on that board before, it takes mm-hmm. a long time. The next time you can speed run it because you know where all the bad guys are, you know where the treasure is, and you know where the secrets that you have to find are. Yeah. We don't get to replay any of life's levels. Yeah. Although we could, I could start another business. If I sold this company and started another business, I would have the advantage of everything I've learned about this one and roll it forward into that one. Yes. Which means that company would become mature at a vastly accelerated rate because my priorities would be driven toward building a mature company. So, Okay. I guess I'll announce the new company that I've started in the next couple episodes, okay? Because this was my exact thinking. So, looking at our new building, I go, okay, it's a, a we'll call it, we'll round up to 10,000 square feet of shop floor space. At the pace at which we're growing, we buy X number of machines that take up X amount of square footage. We will be full in about three and a half to four years or five years, depending on how the economy goes. And yep. you're already starting to see that. So we sold off. Better at the start F2. that zoning application right now, Jay. Yes, I know. You only got well, five years ugh, to get it approved. Zoning. <laughs> but so we're going horizontal. The horizontal has, uh, it's been an amazing payoff because I'm telling you, we're getting parts done. Just, it's not that we're pursuing speed, it's consistency where it's the tortoise. It's a fast tortoise. How about that? And so we sold off a VF2 that just, we did, we literally did not turn it on for six weeks. And so it just, it, now it's an open area and, and the next VF2 next to it, will probably move it out and then get another horizontal, something like that. That's the plan. But at some point I knew that my ability to put money back into the company would be limited. So if you're not reinvesting in the company, you're basically giving it to the US government and for me, the state of California. So mm-hmm. the pace at which I put money back into the company, whatever that rough dollar amount is, let me put that into a new venture so that I'm hedged against any slowdowns in manufacturing. And then I have this second venture and I bring the three things that I've accumulated over the years, my knowledge, my relationships, and my monetary 
value, my savings, the cash flow mm-hmm. out of Pearson and reinvest that. And I can tell you, Andrew, like within it's been alive for a little over a year and we've been producing product for about six months now. It is, I would say more, oh gosh, the Pearson guys are going <laughs> to, they're going to be mad, but it's more advanced than Pearson work holding as far as lean adoption and the, the ability to produce. And it is because I've got a guy um, that is a rock star. He's acting as the president. We've talked about rocket fuel, which is the relationship between a visionary and an integrator. And the president that I hired, I'm very much like off the charts, not off the charts, sorry, at the top of the charts as a visionary. He's at the top of the charts as an integrator. We work really well. We see eye to eye. He runs with lean. He's built a team and a culture that loves and embraces lean. And it's just been one of those things. It's like, yeah, this is what I envisioned. This is a big investment, but I know where we're going. I know what we can achieve because I've already done it. And so, yeah, that would be one of the things I would not sell Pearson Work Holding anytime soon. I would like to pass it on to my children, to be honest, because I feel it is like a legacy brand, especially that's in a slow- a whole different question. Oh, that's- Family business oh, is passing Quite frankly, that is a mess, <laughs> okay? Second generation built, uh, businesses fail at such remarkably high rates. And if they don't fail, you have your two most precious, my two most precious offspring, my two boys, at some point, probably going to be hating each other over something stupid like money, which in the yeah. grand scope of life and eternity has very little to do with anything that actually matters. But anyways, I, I want to see it as a legacy brand. There's other like legacy brands, not just in, in work holding. Well, there's certainly like Chick was created by Mr. Chick, I guess, Kurt work holding. These are old legacy brands that we've all grown to know and love and they're adopted and they're just, they're, I, I'm pretty sure they're cash cows at this point. But no, I just wanted to create just like a what if. I, I feel like I'm at the half time of my life and my career. And I, I don't want to look back in my 70s and 80s going, man, I had the resources, I had the energy, I had the wisdom, knowledge, the money, and I, I stuck it in, the, in a 401k. What was I thinking? <laughs> so yeah. Have fun, buy machines, live dangerously. That's right. <laughs> Tangible well, this- assets. I have a number of friends who are interested in Bitcoin. I'm interested in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And the idea that Bitcoin as an asset is continuing, although it's very volatile, is continuing to grow in value in relation to most other nationally or regionally based currencies, euro, dollar, whatever. Mm-hmm. But the question is, if I could park a bunch of money in Bitcoin and it would appreciate 10% annually, theoretically, could I do better with that money betting on myself? Yeah, right. Can I bet on myself where I actually like, I get to pull the levers and push the buttons and make the decisions in real time. Is that likely to be a better outcome for me over a big impersonal international global market, just inexorably, but slowly marching in some direction? Mm -hmm. And I understand the value of hedging in both ways. There, There is real value in putting some things outside your control that are stabler. Yeah, Bitcoin is exactly. not stabler. Yeah. But investments in 401ks are not giving up. They're not parking your money in a savings account that has negative real yield mm-hmm. where your dollars are just gradually sublimating directly into the atmosphere. <laughs> but betting everything on yourself, you can get things really, really wrong. You can yeah. 
misread the market. You can take risks at just the wrong time. You can really screw it up and lose a lot. Mm-hmm. So I go back and forth between those. I don't think I really want to sell Henry Holsters in the near future. I'm sure that there could be some amount of money that doesn't plausibly connect to the size and scale of my current company, but there's some amount of money where I would just go, you know what? I'm willing to take most of my team or all of my team with me onto a new thing. If somebody else wants to buy this and absorb it, relocate it, take it over, and it would depend a lot on what the seller, what the buyer wanted to do with the assets I sold them. Mm -hmm. If somebody wanted to buy my company and buy the current building and retain my staff and run the company, that would be a very different proposition from somebody wanting to buy my company, any IP or patents that I own, buy my equipment, lay off all my people, and then relocate everything some other place and just bring in our products or our ideas and make them in their own facility. That wouldn't be attractive to me at all because I'd have to be throwing everybody else out of the boat. If the amount of money was big enough that I could keep everybody and take them on to the next thing with me, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what I would do. Yeah. But I love the idea of starting another company in a couple years. Mm Mm-hmm either a clear branch off from or a fresh start alongside my current company and be able to say, okay, we're going to start this in the fourth quarter. Mm -hmm. We're going to start up by five touchdowns by doing this, 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 and this. Mm -hmm. We're going to come to market with this kind of plan. We're going to fill these five key seats from the very beginning. We're going to do, you could literally start your business in the fourth quarter up five touchdowns. Yep. If you plan it right, you pick up already winning because you've already won in your mind. You've already won in your plan. You've already won with your team. And then you just have to go out there and bend the market to your will. Yeah. That's really attractive. Yeah. And 10 years ago, I wouldn't have had the confidence or the audacity mm-hmm. to frame it that way. But I'm becoming more comfortable just saying, yeah, I think we could do it. Yeah. My three-legged stool analogy, time, money, and energy, energy I'm playing with, uh, I'd probably call it a resource. Yeah, 10 years ago. Well, pre-Pearson Workholding, I was, what was my title? Director of operations for a software company. And I worked Mm -hmm. for two terrible, tyrannical bosses. I made a video about it recently. And they had like literally overnight success. They started building these websites. They did like these promo videos. They did this marketing thing. And they said, on this date, we're going live. And that day, like tons and tons of people purchase like these websites. Uh, They're kind of templated websites. And it changed those two guys where I was friends with both of them. Suddenly they became like overnight or maybe over a couple of years, like really just rotten people. And I can say that pretty confidently. And they know that they're changed as well too. And to the point where they moved out of the area and started new, not new families, new they just brought in new family and new community around them. So it's like when people win the lottery and most lottery winners go bankrupt. No, I do think that the 10-year path of building in the company, like we're both bootstrappers. I think bootstrappers make great entrepreneurs because we watch every penny. And my director of finance is like, hey, look, this happened. Dude. We're just going to write it off. It's a $600 loss, whatever. It's just, we. I could chase it. I could spend eight hours chasing it, but at some point, if it goes into a second day or a third day, you've already lost another $600. So 
there's that type of thing. So we just go, yeah, there's fair losses every now and then. Or To me, no loss is fair, but it's just a calculated thing. No, we're just going to let it go. We're going to chalk it up. It's going to be a tax write-off at the end of the year, and we're going to move on, learn from it, and move on. So uh, you doing business or you and I in 10 years of business and then really start to get some steam and the finance leg of our three-legged stool gets longer, our resource leg gets longer, our energy gets shorter. At some point, it's going to balance out. And yeah, I would say that I would encourage anyone out there that's running a successful entity, if they have picked up time and skill and knowledge and, and relationships, risk it. Like If no one is in your life saying, risk it, I'm telling you, Jay Pearson says, just go for it. You've already built one great company. But Try but, again. But- don't write a 30-page business plan, please. I don't, think a, I don't think a guy that, yeah, I don't think that would happen. And if they did, I'm not talking to you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm talking I, to a different I guy. I talking that, to a guy years ago, and he was talking to me about all about the business he was going to start, and he had this long, complicated business plan he wanted to show me. And I looked at it, and it's just the whole game-recognized game idea is, I look at that and go, if this is how you approach starting a business is this very, very complicated, detailed plan about everything you're going to do for the next five years. You should not start a business. Yeah. So I was taught to create business plans in college, my one semester of business school. And I did. And guess what? I found it like in, on an old hard drive or old laptop years oh, later. Instagram that thing. I really should. And, and you know what happened? It was not even close so what does a 20 or 19-year-old in, in business school do with, at that point? You, you don't know anything. You don't know anything. You might as well just ask ChatGPT these days to write you a business plan because so much happens. What's more important is not a business plan, but business principles. Like We embrace lean. That is a structured framework for which we work within. That's yep. way more important than a plan. Plans can change. Economies can change. Customers, products, people, all can change. But principles don't. What's that saying? No plan survives first contact with the enemy. Mm-hmm. Any no, no business plan survives first contact with the market. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I've actually got to run in just a minute. The thing I was thinking about today that I'm putting up on the whiteboard for our morning meeting tomorrow morning is the question, what do we already have that we're underutilizing? I love that. That's good stuff. And I look at that and go, there are tons of things in our current company where we don't need to go out and buy another bushel of lemons to squeeze. We've got all these lemons laying around and we need to squeeze them. Before we go get more machines, before we go hire more people, we need to find ways to turn the things we already have that we've already invested in into engines that generate revenue for the company to give it the horsepower to be able to stand on that throttle. There's an image when a jet has more thrust than weight, the thrust to weight ratio. And a jet can accelerate vertically. Mm-hmm. You get to a situation where you can climb clouds. And you, you can find video of this, like from a cockpit where a guy in an F-16 or something is basically flying level up toward a huge vertical cloud face. And he just pulls the stick back and he just flies straight up it. Mm-hmm. To do the things I want to do in my company or to do the things in the next company that I want to do, I cannot afford to come to that firing on half my cylinders. And all the things I have already that we've built, that we've learned, that we've bought, those things can either be weight that I have to lift using some other engine, or they can be an engine that increases our propulsion to get up over the next thing. 
I love it. And I would much rather have a small company that is firing on 10 cylinders and every bit of it is just pumping rather than a big company that has just fat and slop and waste and underutilized resources everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's sclerotic and slow and sad. Yeah. Hey, I'm a city boy, so I don't know what a bushel is, but I'll trust that you used it correctly. In a bucket, a bushel, a sack, a pouch, Great. some quantity of lemons. Great. Now it all makes sense. 